All right, well, the title of tonight's message is, I Shall Not Be Moved. I Shall Not Be Moved. And when you think of things related to faith, when you think about spiritual health or spiritual well-being, God, you could follow sort of a step-by-step process in terms of how God wants to interact with each individual member of the human race, how he wants to get a hold of their thinking. And so there's a progression. It's not all at once. There's sort of a, a process. And as you think about those different steps, the first one is pretty obvious that God seeks to convince every person of his or her need to accept by faith the redemption that he alone offers. And as you think about there is no eternal life, there is no future to look forward to apart from God convincing or persuading each man or woman to make a decision to put their, tra- their trust or their faith or to accept the gift that God offered through the person and work of His Son, Jesus Christ. So certainly any walk of faith or any life of faith, it starts at that point in time decision that one must w- make while they're still alive. In this life, we have the opportunity to make that choice, but once that choice has been made, then that settles it in terms of our eternal destiny is now secure as positionally we become identified with the family of God. We positionally are born into God's family. He says, now you're my child and I'll never let you go. It's irrevocable in the sense that all that you had to play in this was to make a decision to either accept or reject my son. The moment you accepted the work of my son, his death, burial, and resurrection on your behalf, you were born again and you had new life given to you that was eternal and would never change. But the second step of that progression is that God then wants to reveal himself to us in a greater way as the exclusive source of the believer's confident hope and security. Now, you think about that as it relates to hope in terms of God having been faithful or capable of having dealt with our past problem with the penalty of sin, the debt that was owed, that he alone had satisfied that. But then you think about our confident hope and security as it relates to the present. God wants to show the believer, the new believer, he wants them to grow in grace and knowledge and understanding so that they would progressively learn to have that confident expectation, not just some of the time, but all of the time, as they saw the faithful character of their God, that security that comes from knowing I'm His and that He loves me desperately and that He's going to undertake to direct me in my life and to equip and enable and empower a manner of living that would otherwise be impossible and that my confidence and my security comes in knowing that I'm one of His and He'll always be with me. He'll never let me go. He'll be there to protect me and direct me and undertake for me. And so there's a sense of security that God wants to give to His children after they have placed their faith in Him. And He wants us to grow in that confidence As we see, it's less and less about us and it's more and more about Him. And as we reflect on that reality, that it's not I, but it's Christ, it's not about me, it's about God and what He can do, that our confidence and our security would actually grow over time. That we would be emboldened in our faith. And that's sort of the second phase of that process that God is seeking to accomplish in each and every person. Now, the third step of that is closely connected to the second, and and that's that God then wants to persuade every believer to live or walk by faith. So, having that growing 
sense of my security or my confidence comes from the exclusive source being God Himself, then along with it is that if I'm convinced that, if I have that security and confidence in who He is and who I am to Him and how He's promised, He's made promises that He will keep as it relates to my past, my present, and my future, and as I gain in that, grow in that confidence or I gain confidence, then God wants to persuade me or convince me that Living for Him is worthwhile, that a life that is characterized by faith is worthwhile, that it's the only way really to live, that there is no life to live apart from Him, that I'm going to want to lean into Him, draw nearer to Him, include Him in my life instead of pushing Him away, instead of excluding Him from my life, that He's going to convince me to have a walk of faith where I not only had a trust in Him to deal with my, the penalty of my sin in the past, but I, I'm learning through this growing confidence in Him to trust Him with every moment of my life, the moments of every day, where I would have that hope, that great expectation that God alone can make a way for me in this life too, this practical sanctification, not that positional sanctification that occurred at a point in time, but this practical Christian living that it's worth living And that it can only be lived through a complete dependence in Him to do in and through me what I could never do for myself. And so that's an ongoing process. That's what we call it progressive sanctification. That as we mature in our faith and we learn more and more about our God, we come to a greater and greater sense of honesty even about ourselves. We see ourselves for who we really are. We see Him for who He really is. Then we grow in that grace and understanding as we see, I have to trust Him. I have to trust Him. Without Him, I'm hopeless. Without Him, I lose my weight. I need Him. Every hour, I need Him. Every minute, I need Him. I can't do this without you. And so that's sort of what it looks like or it w- the process would involve in terms of Christian growth. But as you think about the pages of Scripture, the pages of Scripture report, repeatedly proclaim the importance and value of learning to have a life of faith, to walk by faith, to learn to trust God with our moments, the moments of every day. This idea of personal experience validating what God proclaims to be true. So we see it in the pages of Scripture. We see it through the personal experiences of men and women of faith. And as they lived life, they had personal experiences with God that validated that what God said was true, that He was the source of life and that it was worthwhile to have a walk or a life of faith. This idea of tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. Now, as you think of different characters in the Bible, you see them repeatedly being given opportunities to respond to these truths about how God wants us to operate and live in complete dependence on Him to allow Him to undertake and direct and guide and equip and empower our lives. This walk of faith again, that it's, it's worthwhile, that it's necessary. And so... Every person has to, is given those opportunities. We see different characters in God's word respond to those opportunities, sometimes successfully, sometimes unsuccessfully. But as they, the characters in Scripture, and as you personally experience the abundant life, it should promote a desire to remain connected to God and to live a life that is pleasing to Him, directed by Him and empowered by Him as you taste and see that the Lord is good. As you get a little bit of a flavor 
of what the abundant life looks like, what it feels like, what it involves, doesn't it make you want more? Doesn't it, shouldn't it make you want to experience that in a fuller, more frequent type of way? To have that become a pattern of your life, that my life would be described as a life of faith because the life of faith is the abundant life where I'm learning to rest in God and His promises and His power for my life. And so, that's again a process. Now, unfortunately, believers are easily moved. Believers are easily, easily shaken. Believers are easily distracted from this objective of learning to live life with God, to have a, a walk of dependence, a walk of faith, to trust God with the different moments in our lives. And believers become insecure in their faith as their focus shifts to the horizontal plane. As the believer's focus shifts to themselves or their circumstances, the world around them, people around them, they become insecure in their faith instead of being strong and unmovable and unshakable in their faith. But you see, presently and continually, trusting the Lord is the only remedy or solution for that problem, is that as I see myself falter, as I see myself shaking, as I see my gaze shifting, as I see myself becoming distracted, what's the cure for that? Well, get my eyes back on the Lord. Start trusting Him again. Be reminded that, again, without you, I'm hopeless. I lose my way. That's the remedy for that. So keeping your eyes on the Lord with a posture of ongoing dependence is the only means of remaining fixed, steadfast, unmovable, and unshaken in your faith. So our title, I Shall Not Be Moved, you're going to hear David is one of the characters that God gives us an illustration or examples through in the Word of God as he's showing us things about ourselves, but showing us things about himself through these characters that we find in the Bible. Now, David is just one of those. And he's going to talk about not being moved, but he's going to talk about how learning to continually and presently trust the Lord is the only way that you can be immovable or steadfast or unshakable. And he's going to make that connection for us as a principle that we all need to be reminded of and that we all can be encouraged by. So if you haven't already, this is a principle that gets illustrated in Psalm 21 that apart from trusting in the Lord, learning to rely on Him, we never will experience that I shall not be moved kind of life. That that's not a way of life we can produce. That's something that's a byproduct of trusting the Lord. So turn, if you will, there to Psalm 21, and we'll dig into this psalm. 13 verses tonight. I want to give you a little bit of background before we dive into it, because I found this to be interesting and useful. As I read Psalm 21, I wondered, why is David referring to himself in the third person? It's kind of got a weird flavor in that sense. So, I mean, you can, he's talking about himself. We can just look at verse 1. We'll eventually read this, but this is just an example. The king, the king shall have joy in your strength, O Lord, and in your salvation how greatly shall he rejoice. You have given him his heart's desire, referring to the king, but he is the king. He's not saying it in the first person. He's saying it in the third person. Now, why is that? Well, this psalm is thought to be associated with some, cer some type of ceremony pertaining to the anniversary or renewal of a king's coronation. 
And so this is something that he would be reading about himself or might be being read about himself, that he apparently penned the words to it, but it was something that was repeated seemingly on an annual basis. And that's why as you look at this kind of a coronation psalm, it includes a recollection of past victories, but it also includes the anticipation of future triumphs based on God's faithfulness and steadfast love in the past. So as you were going to look forward to another year, you would both look back at or recall God's past victories. That would be an encouraging thing at a coronation if this was done on an annual basis. But then you would also look forward with this confidence based on an anticipation that God, having been faithful in the past, would be, continue to be faithful in the future. And as you think about that, I, I hope there's an application in your life too. You see, re- recalling God's past faithfulness, it should encourage you to trust Him with future challenges and face them with a confident expectation, with this expectation of, I shall not be moved. Why? Because I'm trusting God. What value would that have? I've seen in the past that trusting God has, God has always shown himself to be faithful. So that actually makes my confidence grow as I look forward to challenges that I know are coming because life is what? Life is full of trials, difficulties, challenges, hard circumstances, and some of you are going through harder ones than others here tonight. Everybody can think about challenges and hard things that they're facing. There's absolutely no exceptions to it. The only, the only difference is on a relative scale from a human perspective, perhaps the challenges that I face today were less significant than the difficulty of the challenges that you're facing tonight. But we both would benefit from looking back at God's faithfulness, His past faithfulness in our lives, and having a renewed sense of comfort and encouragement and confidence looking forward as we still face those trials, but we face them reminded, reminded of or remembering just how good our God is, just how faithful our God is, just how capable our God is, just how reliable our God is. And doesn't that all of a sudden cast things in a different light? It should. And that's what David is kind of doing here with that part of the the psalm is reflecting on or recalling God's past faithfulness, but then looking forward to anticipated future challenges with a sense of confidence knowing about God's character, being reminded of God's character. So this is potentially the reason for David referring to himself in the third person. I don't know if that's a satisfactory explanation or not. It's just one that I came across in my study. So let's dive into this first section. I have this first section labeled, His Heart's Desires, or the King's Heart's Desires. Why don't we yeah, let's just, let's just read th- through the whole thing so we don't kind of strip it of its flavor or its overall context. So we'll read through here. Verse 1, The king shall have joy in your strength, O Lord, and in your salvation how greatly shall he rejoice. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. For you meet him with the blessings of goodness. You set a crown of pure gold upon his head. He asked life from you, and you gave it to him, length of days forever and ever. His glory is great in your salvation, honor and majesty you have placed upon him, for you have made him most blessed forever. You have made him exceedingly glad with your presence, for the king trusts in the Lord, and through the mercy of the Most High he shall not be moved. That's where our 
title comes from. Your hand will find all your enemies. Your right hand will find those who hate you. You shall make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord shall swallow them up in his wrath and the fire shall devour them. Their offspring you shall destroy from the earth and their descendants from among the sons of men. For they intended evil against you. They devised a plot which they are not able to perform. Therefore, you will make them turn their back. You will make ready your arrows on your string toward their faces." Be exalted, O Lord, in your own strength. We will sing and praise your power. So this first section, his heart's desire, or you could say, if you're applying this to yourself, your heart's desires. In verse 1 here, we see God's strength and salvation or provision is a source of joy. God's strength and salvation is a source of joy. And as you think about verse 1 here, the king shall have joy in your strength, O Lord, and in your salvation, how greatly shall he rejoice. And one observation you should make by looking there there, or reading this verse is that faith is God-focused. It's heavenly focused. You see, as you read this, it's God's strength and it's God's salvation that are worth rejoicing or the cause of celebration or the cause of joy. You see that phrase, your strength, with a capital Y, at least in my Bible, your salvation, capital Y again, in reference to, O Lord. So, Lord, this is your strength. Lord, this is your salvation. And because of your strength and and salvation that you provide, I, as your child, have cause for joy. I have cause for celebration. See, God does for man what he cannot do for himself. And this is a central theme of the Bible. And God taught Israel this lesson repeatedly. They learned to sing this as a song. Turn, if you will, to keep a marker here in Psalm 21, but turn, if you will, to Exodus chapter 15. God is the source of strength. God alone is the source of salvation. They needed to learn that. They needed to be taught that. They needed that to be the song in their life. We need this to be the song in our life. a song I've even heard on the radio recently is my help is from you and he says I don't have to see it to believe it my help is from you I don't have to see it to believe it are you convinced of that well the Israelites saw it we don't necessarily always get to see it in the same miraculous ways that that they do but we can see it as we look back in our lives right isn't it true that in the moment it's kind of hard sometimes to see the hand of God over your life isn't that true But I'll tell you what, isn't it a lot easier to look back at your life and see his fingerprints, see his handiwork, see his hand in how things turned out or worked together for your good or for your benefit? To me, it's much easier looking back. That's why I love the lyric of the song that says, looking back, I can see your fingerprints upon my life, always seeking my best. In any event, it sounds like you're there. Exodus 15, 2. Now, this is on the heels of the Red Sea victory. Now, how did the Red Sea victory go? Man did their best and then God did the rest? Is that right? Kids, did, did Moses and the nation of Israel, they, they fought with all of their strength and then God brought it across the finish line? Is that how it worked? 
Somebody told me that was the gospel the other day. You do your best and then God does the rest. Friends, that is not the gospel. It's, it's not the, a way of, the, the Christian way of living. It's not all, a life of faith. The life of faith is God does for me what I can't do for myself and I thank him, I trust him, I keep my eyes focused on him and let him undertake in my life. I let him use me as an earthen vessel that has, has no pride. It's a humble vessel that God can work through as an instrument of his grace and his love and his power. Amen? That's Christianity. That's the life of faith. But that's not what happened at the Red Sea, right, kids? God said what? Fear not. What else did he say? Stand still and See the salvation of the Lord. Okay, man, it's, it's a Wednesday evening. <laughs> you know, we're all kind of winding, we're kind of winding down, I guess. But fear not, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Just so you know, a few people have, not even from our church, said, man, you're kind of hard on those kids during those messages. Like, like I don't know, I'm doing it with a smile, but... Fear not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord. So he told them, this is not, the victory is not going to come from you. And then did he, did he fulfill that? Yeah, he made a path of dry ground for them to walk across the Red Sea. And then the enemy came trotting along behind them, and he destroyed them all in one fell swoop. So in any way, that's the context. Now we can read the verse. Moses is saying this, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has given me victory. This is my God and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. So the Lord is my strength, this idea that it's God's strength, it's God's salvation. The Lord is my strength and my song, and they turn this into a song. They turn it into a song. Now, turn to Isaiah chapter 12. I just want to show you that they're going to be singing this song in the future too. They were taught this song as they saw God's strength and God's salvation in the past, but Isaiah is looking forward to a time of salvation that God's going to provide, which is going to cause them to sing again in the future. The nation of Israel will sing this song. Now, that's the context, but we can make an application for us too. The title of this chapter is actually called Thanksgiving in the Kingdom. Now, postponed, but will God keep his promises? Yes. Will he fulfill every promise he ever made? Yes. And will that involve victory for the nation of Israel? Yes, it will. But let's read verse 2. They're going to sing this song in the future. Verse 2 says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid for Yahweh, or Yah just has the first letters here, but Yahweh the Lord is my strength and song. He also has become my salvation. You see in verse 1 it says, and in that day you will say, the Lord is my salvation. The Lord is my strength and my song. He's the one I'm singing about because he's the source of strength and he's the source of salvation and so David understands this as he writes this Psalm 21 that God alone is the source of strength and salvation 
And every believer needs to adopt this mentality and remember to sing this song. I'm saying figuratively, sing this song. This idea that I have joy in your strength, O Lord. In your salvation, I can greatly rejoice. You see, you're not going to find it looking for it anywhere else. Doesn't that sound a lot like Philippians 4.13? This mentality that God alone is my source of victory, my source of strength, my source of provision, my source of, my source of, of victory over the things that I'm facing. You know, Paul has that mindset where he has this confidence that you can hear it in the way he writes Philippians 4.13 as he says, I can do all things through trying really hard and really buckling down. Of course not. He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Where does the help come from? Where does the strength come from? Not from within. It comes from Christ working in me. Christ empowering me, Christ enabling me. And that's why we can say with confidence, to God be the glory, great things he has done because he's taught us to see ourselves for what we are and to give him all of the credit for anything that he's able to do in our lives. You see, recognizing this truth provides joy, freedom, peace, and rest. Now, unfortunately, lessons like this or songs are easily forgotten. If you learn a song, you learn a lesson, but you don't sing it over and over in your life, what happens? You become that guy who's singing along to the song on the radio and mumbling along, and none of the words are right. Now, sometimes you never learn the song to begin with, and that's the problem. Other times you learned it, but it's been a while, and so you're just butchering the song. And the one who's been singing it more recently, they're looking at you going like, please stop. Now, I only know what that look looks like because, well, I've been the guilty party on that before. But isn't that just an obvious lesson? That the more often you sing a song, the more familiar you're going to be with its content, with the message that's being proclaimed? Anyway, we move to verse 2 here. God de- God's desires should become your desires. So we saw that God's strength and salvation is a source of joy. Now we see God's desires should become your desires. Verse 2, you have given him, we're talking about the king here, his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. And the best way to understand this is present fellowship with the Father influences the nature of one's desires. David isn't saying here that he could desire anything even if it's out of God's will or not in alignment with God's character and that God would give it to him. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying that because I'm enjoying the Lord and I'm enjoying the Father and that influences the nature of my desires, then my desires are in alignment with his desires and naturally then God is happy. He's thrilled. He's excited to give me those desires because they're really just his desires kind of in reverse. See, when you focus on him, his desires become your desires. In that sense, you can confidently expect to to receive your heart's desires. Now, you can see this in John chapter 15, verse 7. It says, if you abide in me. Now, what's the condition? The condition is if you abide in me. While that is true and my words are abiding in you, then what happens? You will ask what you desire. Now, what are you going to be desiring? What God desires because you're abiding in Him. It's Him who's leading through the power of His Spirit. So when you ask what you desire in that moment, 
It shall be done for you. How could that be said so confidently? Because God's in the business of having His will fulfilled. Your desires now just finally line up with His. So when my desires finally line up with God's desires, I can have a confident expectation that God's going to bring it to fruition. Why? Because that was God's will all along. That was God's hope all along. That was God's prayer for me all along. That I would finally want the things He wants. That I would love the things He loves. That I would see the way He sees. That I'd be willing to minister to people the way He ministers to people. You think God's going to forget to show up on the rare occasion that lightning strikes and those two things line up? His desire and my desire? I'm being facetious a little bit, but how often, if you're being honest, how often does that even happen? Where you're finally able to get yourself out of the way enough so that God can work in your thinking and work in your heart through the power of His Spirit to get you to a point where you're willing to let go of self enough to finally let Him have His way with you. Isn't that what He's been after all along? So you're saying when that finally happens, you'd have to worry that he would forget to make it happen or to use, to use that? He'd forget to provide the resources necessary for that to be true? That doesn't even, that doesn't even make sense. We can con- have that confidence that when I'm abiding in him and his words are abiding in me, I'm going to have my desires line up with his so that it will be done for me. You can see the same concept. John talks about it in 1 John chapter 5, 14 through 15. Same concept, same idea as what David is communicating here in the Old Testament. John says this. Now, this is the confidence that we have in him. That if we ask anything according to his, wor- his will, so what's the condition? We're asking according to his will. Just like in John 15, if we're abiding in him. But if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if, and if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. Meaning, obviously we're going to get what we ask for because it's finally something that's in alignment with his will. He's saying it with a confident expectation that there's, no, there's nothing else to say about it. Of course we're going to have the things we ask for because it's the thing that God wants for us anyway. And God is all-powerful. God is limitless. Certainly He's going to bring it to reality. So that's what David is saying here as he talks about this idea that you have given Him the King, His heart's desire, and have not withheld the request of His lips. Now we have God's blessings and goodness. So the blessings of goodness, they kind of go together in one phrase here, but let's read verses 3 through 6 because there's another there's a number of different discussions or or ways of addressing this. Verse 3, for you meet him with the blessings of goodness, again referring to the king, you set a crown of pure gold upon his head. He asked life from you and you gave it to him, length of days forever and ever. His glory is great in your salvation. Honor and majesty you have placed upon him. For you have made him most blessed forever. Sounds pretty good. God's blessings of goodness. Now, this is what I thought as I was looking at this section. Consider, 
Consider a loving parent's disposition toward his child. Consider even your disposition towards your children when you're viewing them in love. When that's true, a parent who loves their child naturally wants to abundantly provide, protect, and praise their child. As you see your child in love and you have this great affection for them, you see your, your own interests, your own thoughts, your own plans, your own dreams, they start to take a, second seat, uh, a back seat. And your energies become focused on the well-being of your child. And that's how it's supposed to be and how it normally is, where a, pres- a parent doesn't just want to do the bare minimum, not a loving parent. The loving parent wants to abundantly provide They don't want to just protect them from some things. They want to protect their child from everything. Now they're realistic. They know that's not possible. That child isn't reluctant to give praise when the child does well or does what's right. They want to heap praise on the child and say, great job. That's the the loving disposition that a parent naturally has towards a child. Now God is for his children. God has a loving disposition towards his children. God is never against you. God is a good God. So if he's a good God who has a loving disposition toward you and he wants to provide abundantly for you, then you can get the sense that David is talking about here where he says God's an amazing God. He's a good God. He's blessed me with goodness of many different, in many different ways. And then he kind of breaks it down a little bit more. Now think about some of you memorized or you know Psalm 100. But think about the character of God and the fact that God is good. And of course, that psalm ends with, for the Lord is good. The Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting and his truth endures to all generations. So if God is good, then naturally, just like a loving parent, God bestows his goodness on his children. And you can think about even the psalm we covered, Psalm 23, not that long ago. How does that psalm end? It ends with, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Now, where does that goodness come from? From the shepherd, the good shepherd. So, because of the shepherd's disposition toward me, his goodness follows me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So, God is good. He bestows his goodness on his children, and that's what David is getting at here. God meets. He comes out to greet. That's what that word means. God comes out to greet his children with blessings of goodness. I love how that is phrased. For you meet him with the blessings of goodness. You come out, you come toward me. He's moving toward you. Even imagine the prodigal son's father running out toward him, running out to greet him and meet him. With what? Blessings of goodness. How did the father deal with that child even though the child had been wayward? He said, now I got, now's the time to sit him down and really let him have it. Now's the time to sit him down and just tell him, tell him I told you so. Make him really, really humble. Make him really see how much he screwed up. Was that the loving father's disposition to that child? No, it was to meet him, come out to greet him, with blessings of goodness. Get him some fresh clothes. 
let people know that we're going to celebrate the fact that he's returned. That's the kind of God you have. David understood that. Now, how is it described? Further on in verse 3, he says, God sets a crown of pure gold upon his head. Now, did David wear a crown of pure gold? I don't know. You could take it literally in his case. We certainly can't take it literally in our case. But is God setting a crown of pure gold upon your head as his child? The answer is yes. Even when I can't see it? Yeah, he is, even when you can't see it. Is it physical blessing? Maybe not, although I think if you're being honest and you look at your way of life compared to other people in this country, other people in other countries around the world, I think you would say, even from a physical prosperity perspective, I'm quite blessed. But he's setting a crown of pure gold upon the head of his children because he's a good God. Now, his primary focus is your spiritual well-being. He's promised to provide absolutely everything you need, both to survive in this life, but also in the sense that his focus is on what you need spiritually to thrive spiritually and enjoy the life that you've been given access to with him, the abundant life. That's what he's made possible. What does verse 4 say? Say, God provides life. He actually provides life in time and in eternity. Verse 4 says, he asked, the king asked life from you. He asked you for life, and you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. Now, is that David saying, I think God's going to keep me alive forever? I don't think so. He may be recognizing that, that God and his sovereignty may allow him to live a long life. And in fact, he did. But I think he's probably talking about the quality of that life more so than the length of that life. That it's forever and ever. Sometimes you wonder all of what Old Testament saints understood. You know, we've brought out this idea that David just got done talking about it a couple of psalms ago, how he was looking forward to his future after death with God. Now, is there, are there a lot of passages where it's talked about? Not specifically, but there's some. And here's another one. Length of days forever and ever. Do you think David is talking about temporal life right there? Or he's talking about a life after death, an eternal life? I think he's talking about an eternal life. That's the natural reading of that as I see it. Now, what's another description of this being met or greeted by God with blessings of goodness? He says in verse 5, his glory is great in your salvation, meaning the king's glory is great, how so as a byproduct of the salvation that God provides, honor and majesty you have placed upon him, meaning that you get to experience the salvation or God's salvation resulted in glory, honor, and majesty for David because he's identified with this wonderful and awesome and amazing God. In a sense, there's a sense of glory and honor and majesty as God's anointed one that David is a beneficiary of, even though the glory ultimately goes to God. But as other nations, other people see God working in his life, undertaking to provide rescue, seeing the power of God acted out through the nation of Israel, did that provide some glory and honor and majesty to the nation itself or to, and to its leader, David? Yeah, in a sense. And I think, I think David has a sense here of humility where he's seeing that ultimately God's going to receive the glory. Because God placed this upon him. 
See, David recognizes that this isn't some sort of a glory or honor or majesty that he's earned or deserved or that it's a byproduct of something that he's done. It says, he says, it's your salvation and you've placed this upon me. That's the kind of God you have. That's the kind of goodness of your God. And so, he should get the glory. Then we see verse 6, the first part of it. He says, God made him most blessed forever. Most blessed or most blessed forever. See, God meets his children with blessings of goodness, and he says he's blessed him forever. David understands that. He understands how fortunate he is to have the God that he has and to see his God's care and compassion and goodness directed at him because of God's steadfast love or mercy. And then you see God provided exceeding joy through personal access to himself. Look at that at the end end of verse 6. You have made him, the king, exceedingly glad. Why? Or because of what? Because of your presence, your presence. See, one of the ways that God blesses us, gives us blessings of goodness, is that he makes himself available to us. He sees fit to live life with us and to want to be near to us. He draws near to us. He's a present help in time of need. I will never leave you or forsake you. I'm with you always. Did God have to do that? No, but is is it a part of his goodness and blessing that he saw fit to do that? Yes, And, and we ought to see that for what it is, with your presence. Then we get to the verse that kind of brings out the title of our message here, I shall not be moved. I shall not be moved. Now, I want you to, as we read verse 7 here, I want to see you to see the sequence of events here. For the king, David talking about himself, first thing here is he trusts in the Lord. Then, through the mercy of the Most High, he shall not be moved. The king, through the mercy of the Most High, shall not be moved. So we have the sequence here. It begins with trusting the Lord. It refers to a dependent faith-resting posture or mindset that David has. Now the desired outcome is made possible only by the mercy of the Most High. So the desired outcome is he shall not be moved. But how is it possible? Because of the mercy of the Most High. Now that word mercy, again, King James, New King James, consistently translate this word mercy. Literally every other version of the English, English version of the Bible translates it steadfast or faithful or loyal love. And so, again, there's, I think that has the flavor of it a little bit better. Mercy, you're just, you're just focused on. Mercy means somebody gives me a break when I don't, when I maybe have judgment coming to me or I have some consequence coming to me. That's sort of the natural understanding of mercy. But there's so much more wrapped in it. It's God's faithful, steadfast, loyal, compassion, care, concern, regard for His children that, yes, it does manifest itself by God demonstrating His own love toward us, even that while we were sinners, Christ died for us, making a way where there was no way, dealing with man's sinfulness. Though man deserved to pay the debt that he himself owed, God died in His place, carried that sin, carried that debt for Him. Well, is that mercy? Yes, it's mercy in the classic sense of the word. But it's motivated by faithful, steadfast, loyal, unwavering love that God has for you 
and for me. So it's really powerful when you think about the mercy of the Most High. It's God's compassions that fail not. It's God's faithful provision and power as a result of our learning to trust Him and have this faith-resting posture that allows the outcome to be true, which is, I or he shall not be moved. I have I shall not be moved because that's what David is really saying. He's speaking of himself. So because of or through, by means of the mercy of the Most High, as I trust the Lord, then I shall not be moved. And not being moved here refers to being shaken or wavering in one's resolve. Being shaken or wavering in one's resolve. And that's only possible to not be shaken or wavering in your resolve as a result of trusting, depending on the Lord, having that posture of humility that says, I, because I trust the Lord, I've seen His faithfulness, I'm relying upon that, I have a confidence in that, then it's going to cause me to not be shaken as I face different trials and difficulties in my life. I can have that sense of rest. I can have that sense of security that would never come from myself because there's nothing about me that's worthy of feeling secure or having a confidence because I've let God down, I've let myself down time and time again. I haven't had the answers. I haven't had the solution. I haven't followed through with things, but I can still not be shaken in my faith. I can have security and dependence because of God's steadfast love for me. So the idea is, because the Lord is the source of strength, the man of faith can stand fast. I find stability, security, and confidence in the Lord, not myself. And you can see that page back to Psalm 16. We looked at this not long ago. But Psalm 16, talk about not being moved and how that's possible. Psalm 16, verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me. What does that mean? I'm focused on Him. I'm fixed on Him. My eyes are on Him. I'm looking to Him. Because He is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Same exact idea here. The reason I'm not shaken, the, way, the reason I have security and confidence, stability is because I see the source of that stability as God who is always with me. My sights are set on Him. Isaiah 41.10, we won't turn there for the sake of the time, but it says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. You see, if you felt like you were holding yourself up, you were the source of your own confidence as it related to your faith walk, your life of faith, Christian living, you would never have that kind of confidence. But you have confidence because it's God who's holding you up with His righteous hand. He's the one who's strengthening you. So, because He's my God, He's my strength, I can fear not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord. Now, a similar thought can be found in 1 Peter three fourteen through 15 in the New Testament. Now, now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Who's going to harm you if you're trusting the Lord, serving the Lord? 
But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. He says this, though, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. How is it that I cannot be moved? I cannot be shaken? Because I find my stability, security, and confidence in the Lord. That's what allows me the strength I need to even face persecution, opposition in my life, to do that in an unwavering way. Because my faith is so strong? No, because my faith is in the right object. The smallest amount of faith in the right object can give me victory. It can give me the strength to move mountains. It's not because of the amount of my faith, the quality of my faith. It's the object of my faith. And that's what ultimately David understands. Now, the second part of this is forward-looking. We're kind of past-looking, but the second half of it, we're not going to spend a lot of time on it because it's a, a, a less direct application in our lives. But as you think about this kind of a psalm about reflecting on God's past provision, but then looking forward with anticipation at his future at the future faithfulness of God, anticipation of the victory that God will provide in the future. The takeaway here I want you to get from these next 13 verses is God fights your battles. So I shall not be moved. Now, is David going to face some battles in the future? Yes. Does he know that? Yes. As in this annual recitation, is he looking forward to that with a sense of confidence? Yes. Because of what though? Because he's such a military... strategist? He's such a great military man? No. Because the nation is so powerful compared to the adversaries? No. It's because he's being reminded of by these first seven verses that it's God who fights your battles. See, the second half of the psalm is filled with battle imagery. It looks forward to God's future victories against Israel's enemies. Now, there are obvious reasons Conflict and battle are recurring themes in, psal- in the Psalms. You keep hearing David talking about the opposition, the enemies, the, those that are going after him or oppressing him. This was a way of their life. Remember, Israel lived in a hostile wor- world where her position was constantly challenged by external threats. Now, Israel is situated as the hub of three continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. Uh, it controls the trade routes that crossed through the Fertile Crescent. Israel was pressed between the power centers of Egypt and Mesopotamia right in the middle of it. As conflict is a constant source of frustration for modern Israel. Now you read about that in the news. There's attacks and conflict going on in the Middle East all of the time. Well, it was true in David's day. It had always been true. Remember that Israel took this land originally by armed conflict. The wars of conquest, in a sense, were holy wars because God had chose to judge these adulterous, these idolatry-ridden nations and the demonic presences behind those idols by casting them out of the land and giving that land to the nation of Israel. There was a sense of judgment associated with God picking this specific land where these specific godless people who were living in opposition to him under the influence of Satan himself and were worshiping false gods and were a perverse number of nations with their practices and their thinking that were operating in, again, direct rebellion against God. So God exercised judgment on them through the nation of Israel to cast them out of the land, but it it didn't happen through some sort of, you know, God spoke and this happened, he utilized armed conflict with the nation of Israel to accomplish that purpose. 
And the takeaway of the principle that the nation learned, though, effectively was that God's battles or Israel's battles were God's battles, that God was the one leading them, undertaking for them, directing them. And so as God utilized them, in a sense, to even exercise judgment on these nations and provide this place of rest, I mean, ultimately, that's what the promised land was, a place of rest, a place of rest for the people of faith. He made a place for them, and he said, here's going to be a place of rest. Now, was that, was the main focus on the physical, tangible place of rest or on the spiritual lesson to be learned from it? That God's saying that I'm the source of rest. I'm the one who can provide a place of rest for those who are men and women of faith who would trust me. And I think it's the latter, not the former, though a part of it was a fulfillment of promises that God had made to Abraham. But David understands this principle that Israel's battles, in fact, were God's battles and that it's God who fights for them. It's God who fights the battles. It's not him. It's not them. And so you see that even when you see this language starting in verse 8. He refers to the opposition as your enemies, meaning God's enemies, first part of verse 8. His enemies are really, David's enemies are really opposing God, not him. He says that at the end of verse of verse 8, the last part of it. He says, those who hate you. See, David isn't mistaken that they hate him. It's that they're standing in opposition to God. They're ultimately God's enemies. Then God is described as the one taking the action against them. When you read verses 9 through 12, he says, you shall make them as a fiery oven. It's your anger. The Lord shall swallow them up in his wrath. Their offspring you shall destroy. Verse 11, they intended evil against you. You see again who the real enemy is there. They devised a plot which they are not able to perform, meaning they can't. Who can stand against God? That's the idea there in verse 11. Therefore, you will make them turn their back. See, the focus is all on God. It's on opposition to God. It's not on David. And that's why he can confidently, having learned that the battles he faced were ultimately God's battles, that God was ultimately the one fighting them. Having learned that, God fights my battles, he had this sense of confidence as he looked forward in anticipation to what the future would bring. He had learned that lesson, that there are battles in life, but ultimately the adversary isn't against me. The adversary is against God. They hate you because they hate him. And David knew that, just like you need to see that. The opposition that you face, the trials and the troubles that you face, the hatred of the world, it's not ultimately directed at you, it's directed at God. And so, if the battle is not really yours, if you're not really the one fighting it, if the enemy is not even really against you per se, directly, then can you just rest in God's ability to fight back? God's ability to defend himself? God's ability to stand? God's ability to give you the ability to not be moved in the face of that adversity? that you face as you just trust Him. Your only part in it is to trust Him. Nothing else. Nothing more. And so then we end in verse 13. David depends on God's strength as the source of victory. Look at the first part of verse 13. Be exalted, O Lord, in your own strength. It's just neat how David says that. David identifies man's response as limited to praising God's provision. He doesn't think he has any part in this. You see how he ends 13 by saying, we will sing and praise your power. The strength is God's strength. The power is God's power. 
God exercises or directs that strength and power on behalf of His children. Our only response in it is to sing His praise. Pretty awesome. See, to exalt God, when you say, be exalted, O Lord, to exalt God involves making Him bigger and lifting Him up. But I'll tell you this, you're never going to exalt God unless you have a posture or mindset of humility. It's humility that causes you to lift up God because you see, this isn't me, this is Him that's doing this. Your only part in it is to say, Lord, help me to trust you. Because when I'm trusting you, then through the mercy of the Most High, I shall not be moved. See how that goes? And ultimately, that's the takeaway. Are you presently confident, unmovable, and unshakable in your spiritual life? Now, you won't be, apart from presently trusting or depending on the Lord, focusing, standing, and resting on His faithful and steadfast love is what makes this possible. That's the power source behind this. I trust the Lord because of His steadfast and faithful love, then I shall not be moved. I hope you see that. David saw it, and he tried to communicate that through this psalm, and I hope it was a good reminder for you and I. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we could spend in your word. Thank you for this great reminder that ultimately you are the source. You are the one leading. It's your power. It's your salvation. It's your steadfast love that makes this possible. My response is supposed to be a response of faith, which is really a humble response that says, I can't do this without you. I'm just going to trust you. I'm going to let you work in me and lead and direct in me and give me the victory that only you can provide. And then I'm going to give you all the glory. Pray that we would all have that mindset, that posture, that way of thinking, and we could have been encouraged by this passage here tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Any...